Hey friends, welcome to another episode of the Protect Your Noggin podcast. We have a miscellany. We have been, you know, behind on getting back to listener emails and voice messages. If you want to put in a voice message of your own, go to protectyournoggin.org. You'll find there's a nice, easy, and convenient way for you to record a voice message. You can also email us at thepynp at gmail.com. We hit on some heavy issues today, but I'll tell you what they all kind of have in common is Stacy and I are kind of unpacking for our old pals in conservative Lutheran circles. Where we've gone, we're kind of explaining ourselves. We don't intend to always do in-house, kind of inside baseball, in-house debates about uh, the Bible. But we have spent so many years in this other world. And what you're going to hear is us kind of fumbling around with the fact that we really have gone on a significantly different journey. And it's different enough that people are not going to see things the way we see them and sometimes the way we are seeing the world people might be worried you know Jeff and Stacy are going to hell Jeff and Stacy are off the rails they're leading people astray fact is we understand this friends and we're going to respond to that we love you we're glad you're with us but basically this is a show where we're just kind of being candid about the fact that we we really do uh, see the world through the, the, the way we read the Bible in these different ways and how that affects Christian higher education and how it affects uh, race, gender, and the treatment of LGBT Americans and people around the world, all of these things we're going to say are integrated. They're all interrelated. So we're going to take different questions and all of them we think kind of come together and uh, and, and really surround a, the, one of the biggest issues, which is the reason why Uh, I ended up leaving Concordia. We talk at the beginning of the show about what's going on at Concordia University, Wisconsin, where the president of the Missouri Synod uh, weighed in, uh, Matthew Harrison weighed in on the presidential selection process and weighed in in a way that condemned the university for being too woke, essentially, for uh, critical race theory and um, for... Uh, for allowing uh, changes to the wording for their presidential search to allow women to possibly be presidents. So uh, that's a significant enough issue, and it has a lot to do with the reasons why I left the Concordia University system. So we're going to tackle it head on. We hope you understand, friends, that we love you. We're really just trying to explain ourselves. Definitely don't need to try to convert you, but we're really hopeful that you will be open to just taking a listen. So glad you're with us. Let's go. All right, Stacy, did you ever expect us to be back in Adelica? No, I didn't. In fact, I was just saying earlier today that I would never have thought last summer that you know, we would have, one, already moved to Portland by now, two, uh, all of a sudden be in Adelica instead. But in looking at our past vehicles, uh, the only vehicle that for sure, like when I hopped in, brought me joy 
was a Delica. Like, there's something different about, I don't know, like, getting in the vehicle, people, they, it brings a smile to other people's faces, which, is like, one of those things I, you know, people kind of stare or whatever, and I get a little self-conscious, like, wondering, what are they looking at? And then realize, oh, yeah, it's the Delica. But it's one of those things where I've never had a vehicle that actually brought me joy. Yes. <laughs> and so when we were kind of thinking, you know, with our truck camper no longer with us, you know. Which we loved. Yeah. And it was very functional. It was like a mansion on wheels. Right. But, you know, the direction of our lives have changed and we won't be continuously on the road anymore. Right. For, you know, that, I mean, that that time is behind us, I think. And so, at least for now. Yeah, we're not going to be living in the RV at any time. And we needed a car future. <laughs> that was narrow enough to fit in our driveway so that this one wouldn't end up getting stolen. Yeah, this is part of the problem. When the <laughs> contractors, somebody somebody had run over the fence before we got there at our rental uh, property, and they uh, they replaced it. You know, the insurance company replaced it with a, with a, a fence. But the fence uh, is nice. The the gate is too small. They made it like basically an entry gate, like when you're walking and put two of those together and called it a driveway gate. But it's yes. just, it's not, I mean, at most what, probably then at most 10 feet wide. The right? driveway fits two vehicles. And so we didn't think twice about it. We thought, well, this is perfect. We can move the, the truck camper into that and maybe even, you know, have it as a special, you know, kind of. Uh, guest house, you know, along the side of the house, yeah. uh, but we couldn't physically fit it in. Our this Prius, Delica, this is, it fits right in. Just for, for anybody that knows like about size, our Prius barely squeaks in, and sometimes we even like move a mirror to get into it, so it has to be narrow enough to fit, you know, a, a car smaller than a Prius. It is, it, this thing is amazing. Anyway, they're very tiny. If you don't know what a, a Mitsubishi Delica is, it is a right-hand drive, Japanese domestic import uh, that uh, is diesel and just wonderful four-wheel drive action. It's a little uh, minivan, kind of looks like, um, how would you say, like the Westphalia a little bit, uh, but it's a little adventure vehicle. Looks a little bit like what those Ewoks drive. You can check out a picture of our beautiful, beautiful Delica on uh, protectyournoggin.org. And if you want to weigh in, you could shoot us an email um, at uh, the PYNP at gmail.com and uh, so far Stacy we have three three names for the vehicle uh, <laughs> th that are in the, the the top you know we're the, open to other ideas as well yes but um, so we thought of Luna Luna indeed for oh, the, the 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 last the part moon. the last part will always be Star Wagon and that's part of what's yes. on the decal on the outside this last is, name Star Wagon this is a Star Wagon so Luna Star Wagon Luna Star Wagon I figured kind of the moon, the star yes. being sort of the sun, kind of a balance, maybe Tao, I don't know. Um, yin. Yin, yes. Yeah. Uh, hula was another one because there's a little hula girl uh, in the front of the the Delica that came with it. And yes. And so sometimes we realize that a vehicle is already kind of either has a name or is named itself or somebody else named it. Yes. So hula, and that's fun, although maybe a little bit more Hawaiian, and you know, so we're not in Hawaii. No. But it's fun. And the hula hoop is fun. Sydney likes the hula hoop. Uh, and then the third option uh, is, uh, I, I like, Ziggy Starwagon, like, you know, Ziggy Stardust. Also Ziggy Marley. I don't know, Ziggy. 
zinging zipping it. around. Okay, you can zip around. Uh, you I'm, can, I'm this thing is not it. this thing is not fast. No, but it can it can squeeze into tiny little places and go almost where other vehicles cannot go. I have taken this on dune buggy dirt trails. The, the sandy beaches uh, anywhere. So it can zig this way and that. <laughs> the friends, thank you, dear listener, for uh, relaxing with us. That's what's going on. That's where we are. We're at a campsite in Washington State near beautiful, beautiful waterfalls. We probably shouldn't tell you where it is because there's only free spots, but there's eight of them, and they're starting to fill up as the summer's getting going. So we're going to have to keep this one to ourselves. Stacy, one of the, the first things we need to talk about is the the big, you know, kind of thing that's going on in the the world that we have kind of left <laughs> you know like the world that we're coming out of and that is the concordia university system uh so i was teaching at concordia university irvine concluded my 10 years this year and again i i'm very grateful to my colleagues the administration the students for their their generosity and their hospitality uh and yet i had to leave from for the sake of conscience. And I had to leave, interestingly, for reasons and, and related to issues that are coming up in the news mm-hmm. now. And of course, we, we mentioned briefly the kind of activism and the, the, the faculty conflict at Concordia University Chicago. That was something uh, we, we discussed more recently. But the, the thing that I think is, at least I could say it this way, uh, helpful or uh, helps to bring closure or to bring into focus what our life journey has been out of that world and why. Okay? Yeah. The, the, the question is the what and why. So, so very interestingly, the president, uh, Matthew Harrison... The president of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, which is uh, maybe this, I guess, the second largest Lutheran denomination that can that controls these Concordia universities. Uh, by the way, I don't think I mentioned, Stacy, that there is. Uh, I, I think I heard some reports that Concordia, Texas, is thinking about pulling out of its affiliation with the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. And I think there are reasons for that that make a lot of sense as an institution of higher educa- uh, education that maybe has NCAA sports, you know, and is, is trying to serve a larger population. Well, and, and I think, you know, that was one of the things is sort of testing the waters with administration and your fellow faculty members and stuff like that to see if any if there were anybody else there that sort of had like-minded thought of, you know, does Concordia Irvine want to exist outside of the LCMS? From what I understood of those conversations was, no, they really didn't. They didn't have any interest in... A lot of what's going on is yang, if I can put it in those terms. Um, Masculine energy, um, hierarchy, control, authority, the Bible, power, right? This is how I'm, I'm, I'm kind of seeing this and maybe I'm skipping ahead a little bit. Um, but ultimately, I realize, Stacey, it's, we've come a, a long way from where we started. Yeah. Whether we're on the right track or not, you know, I, I recognize that ultimately, to your point, um, there are fights that my colleagues at Concordia Irvine would have fought with me, definitely. And people are in different places with different family situations. What I think 
people in my my close peer group needed to wrestle with was whether or not maybe I was on uh, a journey that was farther away from uh, what they viewed as the proper religion and spirituality than even they realized. Mm-hmm. And that's okay, right? Um, but at the same time, let me just get to the, to the questions mm-hmm. that people have been writing in. So the you know, questions are like, what, what's, what's going on here with this idea uh, that the, the president of the denomination weighed in uh, on a presidential search process, which, which has always been something that the church colleges have, have done, um, but 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 it got leaked. Okay, so you can go to protectyournoggin.org. I'll click. Uh, I'll give you a link to be able to read the whole thing yourself. But basically, the deal is, the president uh, Harrison, president of the the synod, writes to the board of directors, uh, or the the board of regents for Concordia, Wisconsin, and essentially it's a it's a condemning letter. It says that they are uh, amidst uh, mission drift that they have lost their way, uh, that certain people should uh, resign. But, but basically, the things that are concerning to me, um, and I, I don't even know if concerning is necessarily important, but they are concerning to me. Um, but the thing that I think helps us to, to put, a, I think, again, clarity or focus on why we had to leave our, our career uh, and, and life and job and all of that, uh, is that he weighed in on exactly something we talked about in an earlier show that is critical race theory. And it, it was just very disappointing. Um, he basically says, hey, look, there's this other college, Grove City College, and they used to be getting woke, but uh, they, they changed course and they got rid of critical race theory. Now, um, the other thing that comes up, so there's critical race theory is being taught, and this is a problem. Uh, it, go back to our show. People totally don't understand what critical race theory is. But more importantly, that's not really what's going on. What's going on is that Christian kids that come from conservative backgrounds are being taught about some facts that had, had been hidden from them, you know, about racism <laughs> and how it works. And this is something that a church leader needs to prioritize as something to shut down. So just to clarify, what yeah. you're saying is is that by teaching things and bringing awareness to, in say history or you know in America or whatever, um, our racism, uh, the way that it's in our systems and all that. So that you're saying that that is what they want to keep people from. Yeah. They really do. I mean, I think, and and I and this right before uh, right before Augie died, I wrote a letter to a couple colleagues who were doing a a paper on critical race theory for Lutheran educators, and I was furious, and I felt really bad because I didn't want to, I didn't want to rock any boats. I knew I was leaving. I just I just thought it was so frustrating to see people. I think using critical race theory as a way to make the case to parents that they should pay fourteen, fifteen, sixteen thousand dollars a year or whatever the cost is um, for parochial school or, or Lutheran education because they won't have to deal with the race issue. That's terrifying to me. I mean, I don't even, I'm not trying to convince you, dear listener, uh, to believe the way I believe. I just need to explain myself. And from my vantage point, that's rather frightening. 
that that the church is going to weigh in on this issue of race in a in a way that's just so unsophisticated. But I think there's a consistency to it, Stacey. You were gonna. Well, what I'm, you know, what I'm trying to get at is is um, what does that piece have to do with the church and, and say the Bible and some of their doctrines? Well, what do you think? Because <laughs> I think there's an answer. I think there is a connection. Biggest piece that I guess I could try to gather from it is the uh, the use of hierarchy and authoritarianism to control people. And some people don't want to lose their power. And they think right. that if they admit that other people's powers have been, you know, suppressed or not been allowed, that somehow they're going to have to give up something that they don't want to give up. And so they're grasping at what they can, I guess. There's concern about uh, women being in charge of the process. Oh, so this is a separate issue, which you haven't Yeah, mentioned. right. Also in this letter. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so he's concerned that they illegally change the uh, the presidential search description to include language that would say you could be a man or a woman and so the answer is no not in the minds of the uh, the the powers that be within the the denomination no you you cannot be a college president and a woman now interestingly in the old days a lot of these church related schools would have uh, always had a president that was clergy or if it's catholic a priest say and so once you move away from that now you've got men who have been presidents of these Concordia colleges that are not ordained. All right, but they're still men. And there is within the Lutheran, conservative Lutheran circles, this idea that women being in charge of things is a big problem. Just that on its own. The thing that I don't really understand is that so much of when you, like they leave all the teaching of the kids, a large part of it, um, in churches and things like that to the women. I yes. Mean, the Sunday schools are, if you didn't have women running Sunday schools, I, I don't think that they would thrive <laughs> if they if even are thriving. But I don't think, yeah. I mean, it, it, there's a consistency and traditionally it's been okay for women, I guess, to teach the children. Yes. Even, even in church. And sometimes people with darker skin as missionaries, but not adult people. And you certainly don't get to uh, run a search committee <laughs> you don't get to run a college anyway point being here's the deal to your point stacy what do they have in common what i realize is that we were going to leave one way or the other you know we i, I said proudly i i talk about critical race theory but more importantly i i look analytically and critically at racism in our churches and schools in america and in our economic system and, and other issues you know uh, but to have the church weigh in on something like that that's not not even a question of like the age of the earth or evolution or, or any of that sort of thing, or even, to be honest, uh, like sexual ethics. Um, to, to weigh in on those things, I guess I could still see that because of their reading of the Bible. But to weigh in on the race question in this way, it just makes me, makes me very nervous. And that wasn't something that I could stick with. Now, why didn't I fight it? Why didn't I make a bigger splash? Because ultimately, friends, I think what I've come to is with a lot of this stuff, we don't need to get angry at it. We don't need to punch, uh, punch back. We don't need to, um, to, get, uh, to get too loud about it. I think we just need to unplug some of this stuff. 
I think we just need to put our funds elsewhere. And, you know, with the Southern Baptist Church uh, report that came out recently and uh, all of these uh, accounts of sexual abuse and then the covering up of sexual abuse, I'm just I'm just saying if I'm a parent, if I'm just a, a, a rational human being and if I didn't have any other pre preconceived notions related to all this stuff, I would say it is dangerous. It's dangerous to send your kids to some of this stuff. It's at least risky. Let me say it that way. Well, I, I, one of the things too is when you're leaving out just facts of things that have happened in our history or things like that. And then these students that go on to employment or, or even higher education beyond college and to masters or doctorate level, they are at a, an extreme huge disadvantage to have a portion of facts and truth kept from them. Yeah. That it, when you're trying to research and you're missing a whole piece <laughs> of what fed into, you know, like, because current states don't just come out of anywhere right everything keeps flowing right and it keeps evolving current states so i'm saying like things keep changing yes change is oh yeah yeah the the world the The world or the way the way we understand the universe we have new discoveries um if you don't understand how we got from point a to point b with an accurate truth telling of how how we got to where we are today right then how can you possibly, um, how can the conclusions or the few, you know, the, there's a lot of either make up ground to do to try to crash course yourself into bringing yourself up to speed, or that's a whole piece left out of any of your future research. You're talking about if somebody went to one of these schools and then they didn't get that part of the story. Correct. Yeah, see, but then this is part of it. So the whole thing fits together. This is why we can't be a part of it, because it, it actually is a, a great example of a world order, of a system of authoritarianism being imposed by a church in the name of Jesus. Does that make sense? It's, it's, I guess what we're saying is, friends, there's a connection. This is why we talk about full-spectrum emancipation. There's a connection between the fact that they can't allow a woman to be a president of a college, the fact that they cannot allow LGBT students to be fully embraced by the community, uh, in, in all roles of, of, of leadership. And they cannot, uh, and certainly cannot hire LGBT uh, people um, that, are, that are open and affirming. And uh, this is connected to racism. It's all connected. It's all authoritarianism. It's all, it's all hierarchy. And it's all dangerous for our, our health. Yeah. But the point is, again, like to, to try to stay in it and to reform it, I just I, I, I just think we came to see that that's just not it's not in the cards and it's not necessary for us to waste our vital energies to use the Tao Te Ching's, you know, language yeah, uh, was... in, in, in fighting against something that should be probably just allowed to kind of either either change because it has to change by economic forces or let it just kind of uh, go extinct. The, the Christian higher education as it's as it's been. So ultimately, I mean, I think. What I'm saying is that it, it, it's kind of coming to a head, the, the, the world of Christian higher education and the rest of the universe kind of colliding in a way. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I, I, I think this, the only question is to what extent should I have 
been more vocal or loud. I mean, I think I didn't even realize how deeply interconnected all of these themes of misogyny and, and racism, how they really were almost more explicit than I could have imagined. That I do struggle because, you know, with sort of the doubting and thinking about, you know, do you fight? Do you not fight? I mean, I, I would say ideally... Uh, certain battles can be a big waste of time, right? Uh, and I think that, but other battles are important to fight. And so I think where I where I have kind of felt about all of this is raising awareness and uh, about what this is. Like even us doing this podcast and then right. to like let the rest of the world know what's, what's going on. If you weren't aware that these types of things are happening, that is hugely important because you don't want to just ignore it. But I like the advice that I was given by somebody by the name of Kevin. And Kevin said that, you know, you don't, you can't really change people's minds. Maybe it's possible that you can by just flowing in the right direction of what we, what we do care about. Right. And those that want to come along can come along. Those, if somebody, you can't. You know, you can't make somebody quit drinking. You can't make somebody, like, change their life. They have to be ready to take care of themselves if they're going to do some lifestyle changes or things right. like that. And the only time that that is ever effective is if people are are willing and able to look at something in themselves and make, make some changes based on that. Right. And so to, I think that there is a piece of which... It's important to say, wake up. This stuff right. is happening. This is unhealthy for you. It's unhealthy for society. And that is, so that's hugely important. I think we have a responsibility to say that's, that's just the reality of it. Right. If but, you just step back, it's, this, is a, this is an unhealthy way of thinking. But it's I an think unhealthy that mindset what, what that we came these to, churches are dealing with. What we came to, though, was our future wasn't at Concordia Irvine. There is a time when you fight something... And it legitimizes it in a way that that mm. almost isn't necessary. In other words, that's true. When you've got like, when you've got people fighting over whether you should put the host up high in the air or not in the in the Eucharist, and then you get into that fight, and there's the right side, and the wrong side. Um, you're you're honoring the whole thing uh, as as a worthy way to spend your your energy. Mm-hmm. And I guess what I'm saying is I came to came to realize that there is something inherent in all of this that is that is hurting us as a society. And we don't even I don't think as a culture factor in how much this affects things. There are Christian universities and colleges and then little Bible colleges all over the country. They're getting very often federal aid, state aid. Uh, Parents are paying money into it. They're getting a lot of donations. These schools are affecting the way people are thinking about science. And if you're teaching people science in a way that's that's not fully dealing with the facts that we have currently, if you're dealing with social sciences and you're not dealing with um, with with what's going on with respect to race, and if you aren't dealing with even human psychology as it relates to sexuality, you're just like in a, in a bunch of pain. And I guess that's really where it's at, Stacey. I want to end with this piece on, on the question of, of the Concordias and, and where they're going. 
it is producing a lot of pain. And I think no matter where you're coming from on this, look at the scene. Look at the pain of the closure of New York, Concordia, New York, the closure of Portland, Concordia, Portland, the, the pain of this search process in, in Wisconsin, the pain of the students not feeling allegedly uh, welcome. I mean, they're not allegedly, they are, they're straight up saying they're no, they don't feel welcome, LGBT students and students of color at Concordia, Chicago. That's the reality. These things are creating a lot of pain. I don't see a lot of people super happy about this stuff. No. And maybe you could change it. And if, you know, friends that are still in the system, you know, I just, you know, you can make little differences in the world. I know what I'm saying is, is kind of horrifying. It would have been horrifying to me a few years back, right? But I think at this point, I think that, that it's not just that we're damaging the individual kids. We're damaging society when we create a world where facts aren't real, where where you have the cloak of religion to cover over very thinly veiled racism and, and, and misogyny. Now, what does this all really connect to? This takes us to uh, another issue, and that is the issue of how we read the Bible. So this takes us to a, a listener uh, voice message from Steve. And Steve's a wonderful guy, and uh, I've known him for a long time, and so I, I really am grateful uh, for his uh, charitable spirit and he is asking uh, a question about the nature of the Bible and hermeneutics and, and inerrancy. Here's his, here's his uh, message. Hey, Jeff. This is Steve Mountjoy. I'm, uh, I'm talking to you on uh, Saturday. And I just want to let you know I've been listening to your uh, recent podcast on Jesus and anarchy. I wanted to get back with you. Um, I haven't seen you or talked to you in quite a while, but I've... Uh, I think about you guys often and I'm interested in hopefully to hear about your new trip up to uh, Portland and living there and hope that works out and you guys uh, get do get some respite and a break from uh, what we both know is a difficult Christian higher ed. So I'm with you on that one. One thing that struck me um, that I, I learned along the way was um, something I wanted to pass on to you and let, just for your consideration. It, it has to do with, you know, it seemed like at the beginning you tried to um, compare or contrast the the approach you guys are taking to uh, what you called an inerrantist approach. And it seemed to me as I listened to your, your podcast and all, most of the examples you gave that you weren't really doing a, an inerrantist versus a progressive or a um, anarchist uh, interpretation that that what you were really doing is you were, you were focusing on the hermeneutic uh, that it was not what the essence of the Bible is but what it's actually saying what, what how you interpret what it's saying and you're interpreting it in in uh, different ways than than you've been you know the, your tradition or some people in your tradition have uh, have interpreted it and I think that's an important point uh, because. If you say, uh, I understand it differently than they do, and here's why, uh, it, it's not only, it not only comes across a lot different and, and um, more ironic and, and uh, you know, in discussion mode, but it, but it also is, is uh, more accurate. It's just, it's just to say, you know, here's, what, here's where some people are, who take this, this narrow inerrantist viewpoint come across. Here's how they come down. And I, I see it differently than that. In, in the Christian anarchist position, 
but it's not because I, I disavow or, or, you know, somehow think there's something wrong with the Bible, but rather because I'm in taking the Bible and doing what Jesus did with it. I, he, he just, he corrected people all the time on their misinterpretations of the scriptures that they had. I mean, that's what, to me, that's what the, the whole Sermon on the Mount in chapter five is about. You've heard that it was said, but I say to you something different. He wasn't contradicting the Bible. He's contradicting the current interpretations of the Bible. And, uh, and he was trying to draw out and, and explain it and then say, here's how I'm going to fulfill it. So it, it just for me it, it would it would change the whole dynamic. It might it might even change your thinking to say you know I'm I'm not really here here's the battlefield here's the battlefield as I see it, and I'm trying to outfox these wolves these religious wolves, and and I'm doing the same thing Jesus did. I'm do, I'm trying to interpret it that way so that um, I'm trying trying to interpret the Bible rightly so that. We, we get it. We we understand what Jesus is all about, what he's doing and why he's doing it. Um, anyway, that's one thought that I had is just that to, to move the whole argument onto the ground of hermeneutic rather than the essence of, uh, of scripture and, and, uh, and so forth. And I think it will not only um, be more accurate, but it'll get you farther in, into your discussions or into your influence with uh with other people um so anyway there's a thought i hope you guys are well we love you and uh look forward to connecting with you sometime when you're passing this way again so god bless say hi to stacy and and uh, everybody there right bye bye so i really appreciate this because in in one sense uh, steve is right Mm -hmm. that there may just be uh a an inerrantist anarchist interpretation of the bible I think that's that's definitely true. And in fact, in many ways, the people who took the Bible really, really, really seriously, the radical reformers during the 16th century, uh, where they would basically blow up everything that they had done before, the clothes that they would wear, the candles, the statues. I mean, they rethought church radically from the ground up using the Bible, and they saw it as a kind of communal experience and, and I would argue anarchistic. Um, so I think it's totally possible. I think I'm anticipating what we're also going to talk about on the rest of this podcast episode, episode, which is that if you want to play the game with me, this is what the Bible says about government. The fact is, this is to me just the fact is, that there are countervailing perspectives within the Hebrew Bible about monarchy. There are different voices, different perspectives within the Bible itself. And I think that's what makes it beautiful. So I do appreciate, you know, when, I, when I'm hearing what Steve's asking, he's saying, do we need to say there's something wrong with the Bible to make the case for Jesus' anarchy? Absolutely not. I think what I'm saying is for true spiritual freedom, you've got this, this thing called uh, inerrancy that is the problem itself in many ways. So we were talking about this hierarchical structure that, that, that can't let women be in leadership, right? Let's just look at that as an example. How do you justify that? You justify that because you find a line in the writings, in the letter of some dude named Paul. And he seems not, at least in some context, to not like women being in charge of things in certain contexts. I think there's different ways to read it, there's no doubt. No. So the idea, though, with inerrancy 
is to me you have the fountainhead of all of the authoritarian thinking coming from this idea that there is some dude or set of dudes that have the Bible. They're the authorized, you know, wielders of this Bible. And the Bible can't make any mistakes. And more importantly, the way that it's written is very kind of scientific and factual, right? Mm-hmm. So there's no nuance to how, how you're going to read what Paul means. Like, you know, like a lot of times inerrancy does get connected to this idea that when Paul says, I don't allow a woman to preach, then that's the end of that story. In the Eastern Church, there's this idea of uh, the early church fathers having conversations with the apostles, and the apostles are having conversations, as it were, with the prophets. Like there's like a, there's a dialogue going on in the Bible. So I don't think there's anything quote, wrong with the Bible. I just think that if we're reading it like a science manual, if we're reading it from an inerrantist perspective, it will simply not be helpful for our lives. It it is going to make us bang our heads against the wall over and over on so many issues related to like basic science and life and just coping with the world, right? You can't, these colleges don't need to be in this hell that they're in. They can hire a wonderful woman president except... There's this wooden way of reading the Bible as if it cannot ever change. It's not in the, the you know, cultural context. Now, am I being too, too uh, broad brush? I, maybe. But ultimately, this idea, you could, you could give me a, a sophisticated way of talking about inerrancy where you, you take into account all of the questions of genre and so forth. But I think, I think that need, I think this is, how about this, Stacey? Let's think of it this way. The need to have an inerrant Bible, mm-hmm. that's kind of a weird, like, what's the psychology behind that? Oh, and it's terrifying. It's unsettling. I mean, if you read the Bible and let the Bible uh, dis- disturb your settled conclusions, mm-hmm. you know, um, it is a very powerful and transformative experience to do this sort of work. But to do it in such a way that you're going to just think of the Bible as, you know, the answers in the back of your geometry book. Yeah. What's the answer? Oh, that, that's an abomination or whatever. That's so, a lot easier. Yeah. I mean, it's a lot easier in your brain to figure out what you should, how you should act or, um, you know, in, in a certain sense, if you already know the answers, right? right? Follow your rule book. What does the rule book say? And and I think, yeah, that, that need for security and that lack or resistance to openness mm-hmm. is something for us to consider cultivating in ourselves. We said, you know, people can't change. I mean, I think we can change. We've changed. I invite you, dear listener, to think about what would it be like to just be open to being startled by truth every day? Yeah, and people, I mean, people certainly can change. What I was saying yeah. is you can't make people change. Oh, I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They have to come to that conclusion themselves. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, but I'm inviting you, friends, yeah. to just consider what it would be like for you to say, I am going to be in conversation, spiritual conversation with these spiritual seekers throughout time and people that we could say had revelations had encounters mm-hmm. profound and we can say true encounters there's a there's a way of talking about the bible where it's infallibility yeah. where you could say like, it's not going to let you down but it's I think, I think the language of inerrancy where it's about factual data and like very specific statements being true in a cognitive propositional way that's just that's it, it just, the fact is it's just not very workable and i think that there's so many times when I'm talking to Christians that they don't, they doubt themselves. They don't trust themselves. They don't trust 
that they they need a pastor or somebody else to interpret something for them. They yes. they have been taught in many ways. Don't think for yourself. God in the Bible and this pastor or your parents and your government or whatever, all these hierarchy, all these people, your bosses, they're going to tell you how to think. What you need to do is just execute, you know, take action based on what they tell you to think. Yeah, the Bible becomes like an employee manual, right? You just look it up, it, 32, it, yeah. section 5. And then this is how you, this is how you proceed. That's how you comply, it yeah. It can be simpler, but as you said, the real problem is is that once, once you start to get into it there's a lot of things in your world that will you'd have to just keep overlooking truth doesn't need an explanation right it just it feels right yes. you know it's right to if you hear a story and it's a true story versus something that somebody's making up i i feel like there's um there's a difference there's a and and that when facts start to not add up then the credibility of it all starts to disappear. Now, friends, or I know. Crumble. Yeah. Now, I know that you might be coming at this from a different universe from us. I know. I don't even. I don't even know how to kind of bridge this gap between us, listener. If you're if you're coming from a, a conservative Christian background, and I'm not trying to disrupt you to be harmful. I'm saying there is something that's not working, and there's a whole bunch of people in the world that are operating with with what is is not a a healthy and workable spiritual religious perspective this this is I, i'm not doing this i'm not saying to judge it i'm doing it because i came out of it and i found it to be incredibly unhelpful and painful because in my you, own life well you have to do a mental gymnastics right. so that to, isn't working it was as if christianity when i growing up I, I started to get the sense that christianity was working really hard to believe things that are that are like hard to believe and that that will save you. Like mm-hmm. believing that all the animals on the planet Earth got on one boat. Like believing that will save me because I'm kind of giving myself over to the kink of faith. Of and... faith, But faith in things that I can't even really believe because I don't even know what it looks like. In other words, if you want me to believe literally in the first six days of creation, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know how to do it because... The, the the sun and the moon aren't aren't Time invented on the first day, yeah. right? So like you've got a day. So I'm saying I have a hard time getting my brain around it if I'm operating in a scientific paradigm. But if I'm operating in a mythic paradigm, an archetypal paradigm, it's perfectly wonderfully workable. And there's and like the the truth that's there, like still rings through the whole. Yeah. You know, there's a there is a cohesiveness yes. to. The teachings of Jesus. I am not. I, I I think it's really funny too when you when you when you get to the question of inerrancy. How do people defend it? They say, well, God God is truth, and so God can't lie, and the Bible is God's word, so therefore you know it can't possibly be be faulty. Or they'll point to some Bible verses that said all Scripture is inspired and 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 and, and you know good for instruction and so forth. Uh, okay, so is that inspired? Right. Like the point is, you can believe in Jesus, the Rabbi. And even miracles and in wonderful revelation accounts and not have to force yourself to deal with the problem of different eyewitness perspectives on the resurrection, right? Whatever these things are, these little discrepancies. My problem is for young people, I've seen it over and over, they can't get to the value in the Bible, 
because they because there's what's obscuring it is this other nonsense, this chatter, this noise about uh, LGBT uh, and uh, hierarchy in in the family and uh, and and the age of the earth, right? Like you can't get to Jesus because there's this weird fetish for an anti-scientific worldview, right? That's kind of cluttering it, and therefore you don't get to it. You don't get to the transformative, powerful truths. Right. Let me, I think if I read uh, this email that we got from Ben on, yeah. and Aaron, see, there's quite a few questions. Connected. There's quite a few questions that, we'll he, that he asks that I think will help tease out all mm. the differences here. So I'll just start reading. You mentioned you don't believe in biblical inerrancy. I had a professor recently tell me that the word inerrancy is not helpful, especially to lay people. Right. This was in the context of talking about what is considered to be New Testament canon and the primary sources and secondary sources of the New Testament. I'm wondering if he was getting at something similar. I'm wondering what inerrancy means. So what is the definition of inerrancy? Is it fluid or widely accepted? What is the difference between inerrancy, infallibility, and inspiration and does a lack of belief in in inerrancy does a lack of belief in inerrancy compromise the reliability of scripture in norming and guiding our lives in the commands and promises of jesus so there's a lot there ben's a great guy uh so thank you very much let me go to a couple things here um yes it's unhelpful because inerrancy is really a response Inerrancy is really language that responds to modernism. So it's like a reaction against modern ideas rather than um, something that is really inherent in the tradition from the beginning. I'll point you to uh, St. Augustine, for instance. Uh, St. Augustine looked at the, the Genesis creation account and said, look, this doesn't look like it's meant to be literal because of the, when I mentioned, you know, day four is when the sun and the moon are created. This is... Uh, the mind of God before creation. This is like a split-second dream that God had, essentially. But he says, you know, you could read it this way or that way, and we don't really know. But it's still, tr- like, it's still truth, okay? And so that was that was um, what the the church has has been operating with. Not like always, but it is certainly a part of it. And I think you get a very different perspective in the, the Franciscans, right? Um and certainly the Eastern Orthodox Church. They're not dealing with inerrancy the way we're dealing with it. Inerrancy is a very uniquely American fundamentalist kind of thing. Basically, you could go look it up in a biblical dictionary, but generally inerrancy means that every, you know, every word in the original autographs, the original manuscripts of the New Testament is true and factually true. Now, the problem is we recognize that the modern New Testament scholars, even of very conservative uh, pedigrees, will recognize that we don't have perfect New Testament manuscripts. So they always can leave open the possibility that maybe this was a mistake here or there. For instance, you can be an inerrantist and think that the stuff where Paul says, I don't allow a woman to preach in the church, isn't actually Paul, but is like a, like a pseudo-Paul. Well, most people who are inerrantists don't do that, right? But you could conceivably say this this text here got 
crept into the Bible. But generally speaking, um, inerrancy means that the Bible is, is true in its factual statements. And infallibility is, I think, a broader concept that basically just means that the Bible will not let you down when it comes to the questions of salvation. If you want to understand God, if you want to understand yourself, then, then, you're, then the Bible's going to be true, but not in the factual sense that exactly 5,000 people were fed you know, by Jesus with loaves and fishes. Maybe it was 3,800, maybe it was 6,000. You know what I'm saying? Like there's, right. And there are various people, especially at the uh, Evangelical Theological Society, that would say that, um, that they're inerrantists, but they, they define it in such a way that's very open. I just think it's unhelpful, generally speaking. And most importantly, and this is the key, trying to adjudicate these issues that are so important to living human beings Again, race, gender, and LGBT identities. These are hindered by a wooden reading of the scripture that does not allow you to change. Because going back to what the, the President Harrison was talking about, he talks about mission drift. Mm. That there's this problem that college is drifting in its mission. Yeah, maybe, but maybe sometimes things need to flow. So the, the Tao Te Ching would say, you want things to drift. In a way, mm-hmm. you want it to drift towards the truth. You want it to flow with the flow. And there's something to me that is just like impossible, paradoxically uh, impossible about Christian higher ed right now. That if you're saying to be faithful as a university in this tradition, you cannot change. But the point of research is to grow and to learn things. Then what you're saying is you've established an institution whose job is to both change and not change. That's pain. Yeah. Then when I change, I'm being bad and I'm causing pain for other people. I don't want that. Right. I don't want to let my friends down when I say, I like, like I, don't, I don't buy this anymore. Well, and the in fact, the way that we talked about it. And the fact that our world even has changed so much with our access to, to technology, right? Yeah. The Gutenberg Press helped get the Bible out there, right? Right. The internet We now, learned some things. You know, although you can't trust everything on the internet. No, you cannot. <laughs> but there's a, there's a wealth of information that is now accessible to us that didn't used to be accessible. You had to sometimes go to that odd library in Geneva and hunt down a book, <laughs> you know, for yeah. that there's a, you know, sometimes there's still some of that going on. But the point is, is that with the, with our new technology, we have a lot more access to information, which then means that it would be silly for us to stay stagnant in light of new information, new facts that become available. Yeah. So, um, so this this kind of continues with the uh, the theme that we've been talking about with in, in, inerrancy. But I do like this third word that Ben puts in, and that is inspiration. I think inspiration is a, is a great one. You know, what's inspired? Um, inspiration is like you know the the spirit stirred up within somebody, and they, they felt wrote poetry. To uh, write something. Yeah. They felt- yeah. But I could go even deeper than that to say they were in the spirit or the spirit was in them. Mm-hmm. The, the, the mystical connection was hot. Okay. And this is, you could take it in a very, uh, very sacred way. You could be very honoring to these texts to say these were inspired in a unique way that Rumi was not inspired, you know. Or one of the sutras wasn't inspired. You could you could give it preference and still and still uh, enjoy this idea of inspiration, 
But I think, Stacey, you you know this. Sometimes we'll go check out musicians live mm-hmm. to see if they're inspired. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, 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 yeah. There's a difference when, yeah, there's words that people could be singing or saying. And then when you see how they flow, when you notice how they treat opening bands, yeah. how they treat cast crew sound people yeah. everything how much ego do they have up on stage yeah like the, the various things like when they're worried about i don't know their age or how they look or whatever it's just to me it shows it shows a whole lot about the person that you could be talking about maybe your lack of ego <laughs> in your music and your words and then all of a sudden it's nothing but ego on the stage right mm-hmm. and, and 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 anyway so i find that um there's some musicians that I had to walk away from, right? Because yeah. I felt like, although what they're saying is helpful, their lives aren't reflecting that. Yeah. And so there's something... Um, and we're weird about this. Yeah. Like, I couldn't listen to uh, Beck for a while because he was a Scientologist. Now I got back into Beck because he, he bolted. Mm-hmm. Um, it just It's something that we, we, we tend to think more about. But yeah. And um, now this is another uh, listener who is kind of reflecting on this question about the Bible. Hey, listen, let me just take this time to say, we're sorry. Like, I didn't m- come to see things in a different way um, to disrupt my life and yours. <laughs> I'm feeling in a better place with respect to this, though, because even though we've been through a lot of grief, I feel free. Mm. I haven't felt that feeling in a long time where I can just think what I'm allowed to think because I can I'm in this van and I can think whatever I think in this van <laughs> I would also say that you know we've learned that in a moment's notice everything could change in our world everything yeah. and so then you you start no to time look, to mess around so you start to look at life and you wonder what is important what do I care about what am I what am, where am I spending my time and is it worth spending my time there yeah And am I deceiving people? Or more importantly, and I think this is the key, it was enough for me to conscientiously leave that scene, to speak my piece to some students, you know, but to not, uh, you know, not to try to be a reformist and to and to 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 walk away from it. Um, But I I want you to know, friends, that like we want to be aware. I mean, we're totally totally aware that like we were coming from a spot where you you probably had some assumptions about the Bible that you thought, as long as Jeff and Stacy can still share with me this inerrantist view of the world, then we can still have the conversation. We can still wrestle. And I guess what I'm saying is, I feel bad. I still want to be your friend. I hope you can still be friends and, and maybe, you know, uh, we, you can join us in our uh, Jesus mysticism. Um, but, uh, but if you can't, that's fine. You can still listen in. But ultimately, this is the reality. This is, this is where we're coming from. And uh, I know this has got to be really heartbreaking for some people because it feels like somebody died. It feels like somebody just like, you know, when I was a kid, if somebody, you know, like Bob Dylan stopped being a Christian or something, we're like, oh, no, now they're going to hell. (laughs) You know, I don't want that. You know, they've fallen away from the faith or something in in those terms. Well, the funny thing is who controls that narrative? that's, That's the part that's so fascinating to me, you know, like. Did we leave the way of Jesus? I don't Or did that. we jump onto the way I, of Jesus I, train? I, I feel very much like we jumped onto the Jesus train. And, yeah, and it's costly. And the stuff that 
yes and that is true it does there's a lot there's a lot that has been lost by doing that um you know when jesus says take up your cross and follow him i have felt that i've really felt that and i don't in the bible it definitely does say that you will feel that pain when you're going against the way that a lot of people for their own i don't know um whether you know when i i guess we've seen some we've seen a truth and we can't unsee it yeah. and we can't spend our lives not living that way or trying to put this deep mystical truth into language that people will approve of hmm. you know i mean i think people didn't approve of jesus way of talking steve was right that there might be a st- strategic way in which using the bible to get people to come along on this journey can be effective but i think using the bible in a way that that is inherently flawed that is the inerrantist authoritarian reading of the bible as if it's a, a manual for what kind of oil to put in your car it's just so flawed that out from it so many things um are affected and so I, and i feel like there is a a haziness that you can't there's um sort all sorts of things you kind of have to keep overlooking or you have to keep all sorts of things that you have to keep overlooking or you have to keep um, ignoring just so that you can stay on this co- what might seem like coherent, you know, but it doesn't feel coherent yeah. <laughs> way of the understanding cognitive dissonance things. is just too and, great. And it it's disorienting. And also, if you ever feel, friends, what it's like to be in a world that's open and accepting to all human beings... It's really nice. Like maybe I think sometimes people, Stacy, don't get into diversity because it's like, oh, it's scary. Obviously, sometimes selfishly, we don't want to lose our privilege, but sometimes we don't want to get into diversity because we're just introverted and we don't like change. Yeah. I'm a kind of guy who likes change. I, I, I like, like meeting new people. I right, don't right. like change. So I, mean, I understand. Well, how about this? I fully agree that uh, change is necessary. Growth is a, is a beautiful thing. But change for me, it's hard. I like I like my little routines. I like I like sort of having um, you know a general like plan that I already know and I can go off. It helps can help focus me or whatever. And so when things completely disturb my entire world, <laughs> that is very disruptive to my whole being. <laughs> right. Um, that I have to kind of like recalibrate from. <laughs> So you can see how people would be uncomfortable with that recalibration at a very profound level, the religious level. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's my your, that's been my of, job. That's been our soul, journey. But I understand your... it was hard for us, so I don't expect it to be easy for you, you know, to kind of wrestle with this if you're coming from a, a conservative religious background. Fine, fine, fine. Uh, friends, if you're new to the show, a lot of our uh, circles are from conservative religious um, connections, and so we're kind of speaking to that to that element. Uh, this next. Um, audio clip is still related to the theme um, of the Bible, and it's going to then, I think, help us to see how this has broader uh, ramifications. Jeff and Stacy, this is John Mata living in the Chicagoland area. Just want to say, I- I've called before. I really appreciate your show, uh, even if sometimes, you know, maybe I see things a little differently. Um, I'm curious, 
you know, I appreciate a lot of your conversations, particularly around, you know, you mentioned the anti-natalist movement. And that's very interesting to me because I think you're right. Like what could cause someone to say we ought not bring a child into this world? What kind of trauma or experience or, or whatever? And it reminds me of in college, you know, I went to a, I would describe it as a fundamentalist college with some reform influences, Bethlehem College and Seminary. And I remember at that time I was working at a coffee shop, having just some mental health, minor mental health struggles. And the, what shocked me was the empathy I got was not from my Christian classmates or from my church, although they weren't heartless towards me. I actually got real empathy and love from my trans coworkers and LGBTQ coworkers. And so I'm sympathetic to you know, the ways in which, like, I, I was talking to a friend who, who also shares a traditional sexual ethic with me, but she was talking about working in the foster care system. And one thing she notices with same-sex couples is often they're better foster parents because they're far more trauma-informed than many of the rest of the uh, couples who are fostering or looking to foster to adopt. And so I, I think that that's something that's important to understand. Um, now in light of that, I also want to say, you know, I was talking to a coworker about this show Euphoria, which I've not watched, but I, I am interested and curious, curious about. And in it, at least she told me, you know, and I'm kind of inferring some of this, they explore themes related to sexual liberation and, uh, uh, drug related liberation and it, as far as I can tell, has not painted it in a particularly good or bad light. Just kind of an honest picture. I, I don't know how that true that is. But I'm wondering if you guys see, you know, is, is there a dark side to some of these liberation movements? That's my first question. You know, can it go too far? And then my second question is, um, is there a place for good authority structures or power structures. Um, yeah, curious to hear what you guys have to say. Don't feel like you need to answer this call, but but I, I really appreciate the podcast. So be well, enjoy Portland. Lord willing, I will be in Bellingham, Washington as of this summer. So I'm also a big fan of the West Coast and the culture there. So hope you guys are well. Bye. Well, we really appreciate you too, John. Thank you so much. Uh, good guy. Lots in this. Let me hit a couple things real fast. First, uh, I really appreciate that he said he sees things differently on occasion, and that's good. So that, that, I think, is part of the right step forward for all of us, to not just surround ourselves by people that think like we think. Um, then there is this uh, question of the antinatalists, right? Um, and and uh, antinatalism is the idea that you shouldn't have babies because the world is too uncertain and, and it's environmentally bad to overpopulate the earth, etc. Um, what's interesting is, yeah, I, I really appreciate how he kind of, uh, John, you went from the, uh, the, the kind of the question of empathy to the question of the trans community, the LGBT community, and how uh, you noted that when you were going through some tough stuff, there was more, um, there was more empathy there. Here's my take on why that, partly why that is. 
the reason I trust my LGBT friends more than most human beings in my life is that they've already had to get over themselves, in a sense, to be open and out, mm-hmm. right? They've had to go through the painful, painful process of not being endorsed by loved ones and family and friends in, in the society. They've had to be brave enough to be different in a world where it is dangerous to be queer. Certainly dangerous to be trans. So once you get to that, they have, there has to be an empathy within that space because there's that shared experience of suffering, right? Yeah. Do you have any other thoughts on like, like, like why, why, is the, why, is the gay, why is the LGBT community often more uh, accommodating and, and supportive than the churches? Well, I th- yeah, I think just that self-reflection that they've had to, to do and overcome, uh, it doesn't, I mean, sometimes disregarding their entire human families that they had to, to just, just so that they can exist in the way that they were born into this world. Right. That That's a big deal. Like that, if you want to talk about anybody that has done more work on yourself, it yeah. is thinking through that process. One of the things that comes, that comes over and over again, in any conversation that I have ever had, especially with, um, uh, church students that identify uh, with the queer community is that they didn't want this on themselves. They don't want to be different from society. Right. You know, that they, that that just is their reality. And the, the pain that something about them is unacceptable. That the truth is unacceptable. This does tie into the rest of the show. Right. That, that, (laughs) that that causes in somebody and to think that just by your very existence and what what you know to be true yeah that is somehow like I already said unacceptable but it's just so much pain there there's so much for these poor kids that are struggling and oftentimes their parents won't even hear can't even hear what's going on their parents aren't open enough to they can even... be cut out of their parents lives they can be condemned they have to find new family so to think of losing your entire support network which many of these people do have to do yes that is a big deal you don't go and do that over something that is just an opinion or a fun thing that you thought of you right. know or that you you're just want, a perv you want to just sin and yeah. just do whatever you know whatever is it's not that way and so they are even if even if sometimes you see the world differently or whatever if you did these are people that they know what it's like to suffer through that so even if they disagree with you <laughs> they they know how important it is to have loving un, unconditionally loving and accepting community yeah you can't live without it Right. Especially with mental health and, and depression, because there's high rates of suicide. The suffering that you have to endure that is over a long period of time from not being your open, true self for a lot of your life can also be something that you, you have to work with. Point being, those experiences are worth remembering, John, because I think we need to think, you know, the way sometimes in philosophy of science we operate, what produces results? What works? 
What brings help and healing? Sometimes we get too up in our heads and we can get tricked. Our rational minds can get tricked. Sometimes we need to turn to our intuition and our hearts and say, don't these friends over here seem really nice and healing and helpful? And these people over here are, are jamming up my, my system. It, this is making me feel sad and unhappy. Okay, so for me, um, I, I think we also need to say that we unequivocally stand by our LGBT listeners, friends, and yes. students, former and past. Every, uh, we affirm you. Uh, we uh, are, and I would say, I'm sorry that, uh, that I didn't even realize the extent to which this was a, this was a fundamental issue to conservative Christianity because it's about control. Of our of our sexuality, now, so that said, uh, sorry if you don't agree with us, but but that goes back to that inerrancy thing. Some of my students that are LGBT advocates within evangelicalism want me to talk about the Bible as almost an inerrantist that believes that you can you can take the Bible as an inerrantist and show that um, that there is no anti-homosexual stance in the texts and i just don't see that to be true mm-hmm. i don't see it true in most cultures russia china it doesn't have to be christian right there is somehow in militaristic civilization a a big problem with not fitting traditional gender roles because those gender roles regiment you into the civilization you see if you if you see if you go on like even online there's a lot of uh, transarchists, uh, trans folks who are also anarchists because they recognize the connection between the, the, the normative gender roles and civilizational control. And I think that's really what's, what's behind a lot of it. Right. Like why, you, why does everybody care? If you, yeah, if you, certain roles that men do, certain roles that women do, it just makes it easy. These people are going to go to war. These people make sure that kids are fed and you know, all that. We can't have anybody not doing their job. All right. I mean, that's the, that's the idea. You need, everybody needs to be doing something probably to like help make the whole thing come together. You know, any one person can't take on all of the responsibilities. So it becomes an easier system to delegate these different things by just classifying people in a certain way. But again, it's, but it's about control. So the reason that a man can't uh, let a woman be in charge of the university is very closely related to the reason why we can't let men marry men and women marry women. Yeah. Okay, it's a control. It's a control issue, and uh, and so uh, so then you go to the question that that uh, that John asks about euphoria. Euphoria, we've seen it. It is a hard show to watch. Uh, the last season, there are some concerns about the culture on the set. Um, but I think one thing that's worth noting is um, that you say that people have called it an honest picture. It can be sensational. I don't think that all suburban kids in California are doing ecstasy and, and acting in as risky ways as you see in the show. But I know that those kinds of experiences do happen. That world does exist to some extent. And that honest picture is exactly what we need. And in, in many ways, it's what young people need to say, ah, here's a show that shows you if you get into drugs, this is what addiction looks like. 
This is not a show that makes you feel great about addiction, but it also doesn't say that we should criminalize drugs. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. That, it's not like, I, I think from a perspective of a conservative Christian background, you might say, oh, this is endorsing all this. No, it's, it's just showing you honestly what the picture yeah, is. Yeah, what that picture is. She's ruin- the, one of the main characters, Rue, is ruining her life. Drugs are ruining her life. It's ruining her love life. Drugs are ruining her love life. There's a trans character in the situation, and not all the sexual activity that the trans character engages in is safe. Why? You see, so yeah, can things go too far? Yeah, well, they go too far when we live in a world where these things are put into the shadows. Yeah. You know, young teenagers going into risky situations, that happens more often in the world where it's all covered over with the clouds of, of shame yeah that's that that's that's the first thing the second thing is um the kink scene okay go to like any major city and go to the bondage kink scene and then go to southern baptist southern camp and you tell me where you feel safer <laughs> in a way now a lot of people are going to say well of course i feel safer at, at summer camp but should you Right. The, the Southern Baptist Church had been covering up all these cases of sexual abuse that they had as a secret list. And this was going on. And it's, it is not just the Southern Baptists. To me, summer camp is a place where there's a lot more danger and coercion. And what I mean by this is this. I'm not saying, hey, everybody, get, you know, that, that's 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 a little too spicy for some of you. Right. And then that's not my scene. But what I'm saying is my understanding of the sex positive world is that it does engage in a, in a uh, in an incredible freedom compared to what Christians would have grown up with in traditional circles, um, but it's not coercive. Right. Does that make sense? Like I'm more nervous about frat boys, or, or you know, or like bros at a Christian college doing keg sh- keggers. Most definitely. That's the da- that's the dangerous spot. If you're in a sex positive space, people respectful of who you are, what your boundaries are, there's Consent communication. Means everything. And even shows like Euphoria deal in that world. Right? Like they're co- they're confronting these ways of seeing the world that the young people do see. I mean, this is this is at least in in a way that's far closer to the reality that they understand than than the old sitcoms would have ever been. In any case, I guess the the question is, can sexual liberation go too far? Well, certainly, people can become free and it can go get too far. But all I know is that the folks that I know that are in touch with themselves and their desires and their uh, identity tend to be much more ethical and they're safer to be around. People that sublimate their sexual energies tend to be creepy. Well, it comes out in, in weird ways. It can ways. come out in creepy ways. Yeah. And it can come out in dangerous ways to me and my family and to people I love. It's unhealthy. Yeah. So, yeah, is there a dark side? Um, I don't think there's a dark side to freedom. There's a dark side to human beings that might want to use their freedom, but ultimately, I think when things are out and exposed in the open, that's a lot safer than when we've got everything kind of hidden in these religious structures where there is cover-up. The, Making things illegal. So How the, about that? the laws <laughs> basically make people find loopholes. Yeah. And then they think that everything is fine with what they're doing as long as they found the loophole until another law is made, right? right. But yeah, 
like you said, if if their soul needs healing, right? If their soul needs love, <laughs> right? If they want to be reintegrated with themselves and and at peace with the world, that's how it's done. Right. You're not putting somebody in jail and fixing the problem. Right. But regardless, that's a you know kind of a separate issue. The question is. I think this is another question behind John's question. So he says, well, is there some? Is it possible to go too far? Spiritual people have fasted. Spiritual people have restrained themselves. They have sought temperance. They have sought sobriety. Mm-hmm. You know. Um, well, and I guess that's what I was getting at with escapism. Yeah. Right? If, if you're using it, if you're using things to not try to Sex, drugs, and rock and roll. We're be talking about. Right. sober. Right. Really know what it is, you know what I mean? Confronting the truth and the reality if of you're everything. In, yes. Then, then all of that is good. If you're engaged in a present healthy sexuality, this can be very good for your uh, well-being. But you're saying to to be in risky situations to just kind of get out of your dealing with the trauma. Yeah, that's not helpful. But that's not necessary. And that, and to be, be very uh, clear, friends, we're not talking about the non-heterosexual uh, characters on the show. We're talking about just the general promiscuity <laughs> on the show. To, yeah. Well, I'm talking about like so. Yeah. And the drug use. Yeah, drug use. Um, the, yeah. I mean, people do have sexual addictions. That's not coming from a sign of health. Yeah. Right. right. But so, so the, the, I guess, but the, again, behind the question is this. So what do we do about it? The, the yang, masculine, church hierarchical worldview would always say, well, we have to rein this in. Daddy needs to rein this in. Right. There's a, that's, that's not necessarily the medicine. You can identify something being unhealthy and then ask a separate question, how do we heal this thing? Right. Do we heal it with more yang? Do we heal it with more punishments? Or do we heal it by healing? You know, it's a, I think that's, uh, that's why this is all tied together. And I will tell you this, the amount of anti-trans um, stuff in the conservative Christian world and the Babylon Bee and all of this is disconcerting. It is at least fascist adjacent. This is this is why I don't think we any of you if you're listening to me and you're like well I I agree with Jeff and Stacy but it's gonna hurt my uh, friendships and my job or whatever maybe I don't know where you're at maybe join us go on strike from this nonsense because because this rhetoric this racist rhetoric that's going on in Christian circles this this sexist stuff that's getting reinvigorated is coming through in very violent ways with young people and in very unhealthy, unhappy ways. Let's go to uh, Eric's uh, email. All right. Hi, Hi, Jeff, and in parentheses, Stacy and Sydney, too, with apologies if I've misspelled your names. I've been listening to you for the past four years or so. After the last National Youth Gathering, you may or may not recognize my name, but you were kind enough to publish a couple of my poems on your website. Thank you. You're welcome, and thank you very much for your friendship over the years, Eric. Thank you. Yes. I want to say up front that you have been a blessing to me. You have helped me to think through some difficult issues in our culture with kindness, compassion for the least of these, mercy, and a commitment to Christian love. I have been intrigued by your thoughts on Christian anarchy over the years, even going back to Virtue in the Wasteland, which was 
a podcast. Old podcast we used to do. Yeah. That you used to do with Dan Van Forest. Yes. There are aspects of this teaching that make a lot of sense to me, especially when taken with the idea of Moloch as the manifestation of cruelty and power in the systems of this world. Yes, we are tracking there. The ethical behavior of those who live in the kingdom of God's grace is free in a way that transcends the laws of the world and its archons. Dig it. However, when I've listened closely to your latest episode of Protect Your Noggin, I was pretty sad by the time it was done. I have heard similar ideas from people like Jordan Peterson, and I'm vaguely familiar with Elul, which treat the Bible symbolically and metaphorically, but I had not heard you treat it that way before. It seemed to me that you had put a filter over the text that drew out the themes of anarchy at the expense of the context and authority of the text itself. All right, so I just want to pause there just for a second so we can mm-hmm. not get overwhelmed. Uh, so anyway, I, and I really, uh, this is a great example. I love Eric, and so it, it makes me sad to make people sad yeah. that we changed our minds. It, I think it's a factor. Do you see what I'm saying? It's like mm-hmm. a factor in what I believe. Like I, I, I have this empathy nodule, and when people are sad, it makes me not move. And so like I think we would have moved in a different direction sooner had it not been for all the pain that we knew we had to cause to get out right. to other people, right. right? But now in this case here, um, the authority, I think, let's go back to the other word, inspiration. Inspiration, I think, is very helpful to all of us. I, I'd like to be inspired. I'd like to get something of inspiration. I think the need for authority is interesting. Why do I need that? Why do I need authority? Why am I so worried about losing this authority because I and you by the way Eric if you want it you have that boldness within you if you want it right authority is being honest and having integrity and facing the facts with uh, with love and compassion but being but being truthful to yourself into the into the world right and when you do that you have authority and when you have like when you know something (laughs) about something so like there are spiritual authorities they're authorities because they have seen something and they can convey this Jesus spoke with authority not because people sat there and like they were told Jesus you have the authority because you have this official position he had the authority and they heard it yeah yeah anyway well and then you said as well that the themes of anarchy at the expense of the context I think I think that's an assumption that I'm sure that's he just dif- differs with differs us on the in, interpretation okay. because I think I think going back to the earlier conversation uh, it, it, with Steve's comment, right. it, it certainly is I think very easy to argue that the Bible is is for the most part anarchistic. I, I, I that's how I read it. Right. That, but if you don't read it that way, that's you know. right. Right. The effect of which replaces or perhaps only de-emphasizes the gospel of reconciliation through Jesus with a law and ethic rooted in Jesus' teaching. At least that is how I perceive the message of this latest podcast. An example of what I'm talking about is your quote from Judges about everyone doing what was right in their own eyes because there was no king. I do not see any way that this can be perceived as positive based on the context and events that surround the two times the statement is made and the overall theme of Judges. It is a tricky one because if you go into Alexander Christianopolis, I think that's his name, uh, there's a a recent book on uh, Christian anarchy that deals just with the interpretive tradition. 
Um, I am not an expert in the Hebrew, and I'm not an expert in Judges. That is just how Christian anarchists tend to read it. Um, and they read it in this way, and it seems that there is at least a plausible argument to view in the in that way. Uh, other people, and I, I think I've linked online to this, and I may, uh, at the protectornoggin.org, I'll put another link to, to what those commentaries are. That is partly my point. I don't need that to go one way or the other for me to see a general liberatory, emancipatory flow in the Bible. Exodus is enough to get me out of this mindset of slavery. Lot, uh, Abraham leaving Ur of the Chaldees is enough for me to see that the theme of faith is to leave this civilization as the, these structures are. But, uh, but ultimately, uh, we don't really need to convince everybody of this other than to say that there is another way of seeing power. And that power, we're like so addicted to this idea of needing authority, hierarchy, and power that maybe those are not being used or, or they're not very helpful. And Eric continues, as I write this, I remember that you are a man with zero fucks to give. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't think you should necessarily give one about what I am saying. Oh, I very much do, Eric. It, it, uh, it is on my mind all the time. Even before you wrote the email, I was thinking about it. Maybe not you, but somebody. <laughs> Especially if you feel that this presentation is the correct interpretation of the text. I do. You don't know me, and really, I only know you from a distance. I do consider you a brother in Christ. And I am concerned about where you are heading. And for my part, I disagreed with how you handled the text of the Bible in this episode. I totally agree, and that makes a lot of sense, that you would disagree. I understand that. I am in no way calling your Christian faith into question. I will. Let me give you this, though. Um, I think you can do this, Eric, and you could say that he's probably gone on a different track. I think we're all. I think we're all united. All human beings are united, and the and the Jesus mysticism, where I recognize the the way in which Jesus makes us brothers and sisters, uh, is is profound, and is very 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 important. But I think in some ways, it's not helpful for us to deny the fact that I think when I look at some of the ways Christians talk about power, cruelty, hate. Uh, and I'm not saying all Christians do this, but I'm saying I see a, I see a cluster of ideas, and I'm saying, uh, no, that's, that's not my game, right? Like, so you can call it what you want, but I, I think that my, re, my religion, and I think, Stacey, you'd say we, we, we share roughly mm-hmm. the perspective. Um, it is kind of a different religion than what a lot of people are talking about. Like this stuff that these other people are talking about that call themselves Christians, yeah, it seems like increasingly foreign to my ears. It it doesn't feel like it rings true, and I re- it recognize ring therefore true to the teachings right. of the Bible. Now Eric is listening to us, and he says this doesn't ring true to me, and I know that. So that's just what we're going to have to deal with. One of us is on a track that may be more helpful. Maybe both of us are going to collaboratively be helpful, but the point is... Or, or maybe both, maybe of, both of us are, are so far asinine. off track yeah. but, <laughs> that but, we'll discover the But the, the fact is that is how I see it. On. Right? Like, we can't see it otherwise in how we see it, you know? And I think that the, the, the mysticism of recognizing your reintegration with divinity, with the sacred, with the way of Jesus, with, with finding rest and peace in this world through the through the way of Jesus, no doubt, um, is liberating. But it doesn't look like what I'm seeing in people 
a lot of other people that call themselves Christians. Right. And so I guess I want to say is with much generosity as I can, Eric is right, and I appreciate Eric's discernment, right? I'm, we're going down this path. We're going down a path that you should be concerned about. Because either, like, cause, because I'm saying that you should either join me or you should condemn me. But I love you. And that's just a poignant place to be. I don't know what else to do with it, Eric. You know, like, yeah, we don't know each other well, but like I've, we've been in touch over the, the years and I, I, I want all wonderful things for you. That's the only reason I would speak. And maybe we're deceiving people, but I really don't think so. Well, if I knew I was deceiving anybody, I wouldn't. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't do it. Yeah, and that the, the to to not speak is to not speak is the worst thing. Anyway, I do think that it's fair to say that the the kind of mysticism. I mean, we're closer to Richard Rohr and Alan Watts and um, and uh, it, you know and like Julian of Norwich than we are to to you know these the the evangelicals who've got everything lined up with the with the system uh, that kind of flows from uh, from Anselm. I mean we'll talk about this over the the coming months. But anyway, I I think I th- that's a good point for us to, to 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 stop on. In other words, what I'm trying to say is he says what? He says I'm not calling your Christian faith into question. Yeah, you should because it's I think I think we're coming from things and now in increasingly different ways. And that's okay. We can still care about each other and we can still be friends. But I don't think it's helpful for us to say we're coming at them in the same way. Because I see, in, I, I, I see that I've, I've had a paradigm shift yeah. for what is core, what's going on in these texts. Right. All right. And he says, I, he continues, I appreciate your desire to engage the dialogue of the best academic ideas of our day. I am sympathetic to and in agreement with the opinion that we need to be able to discuss these thoughts freely in our academic settings. I have been disappointed with how the LCMS has treated academics who wrestle with fields of learning that do not neatly conform to our traditions and confessions. By the way, I don't think this is true, but if you want to get a guy like me to go off the rails the way I'm going off the rails from the perspective of conservative Lutheranism, uh, back me into a corner like like a rodent in a garage. To what he's saying, that is part of it, right? At just an existential, emotional level, that was not fun. It was not fun for me to work at a job where I was increasingly backed into an intellectual corner. I didn't mean to get myself in that situation. Yeah. You know, but it's a terrifying feeling. Students are asking honest, real questions, and then, you know, you have to, like, wrestle with all these things. It could be something like the Liscow Caves. We're looking at cave art, and now I gotta, like, bounce around. Some people have, like, you know, a problem with the idea that the cave art's, like, 15, 12,000 years old or something. They don't even have a a paradigm that allows the cave art to be 12,000 years old, let alone the caves to be formed over millions of years. So, like, that's why I'm saying that there's these fundamentally different paradigms for the way we're thinking about these things and it's just you know they don't fit together yeah <laughs> they they are divergent you know it's like we're not playing with the kind of the same intellectual toolbox does i applaud you for your courage and stepping away from your career at concordia when you found yourself feeling compromised by the system and Thank i don't you. blame you at all for not wanting to deal with the system or my brother pastors who too often seem more inclined toward the ways of the Inquisition than to the tenderness of tending the flock. God bless you in your new home, new career, and all your endeavors in Portland. 
Thank you for all of the ways that you have blessed me and helped me to be a better pastor. The peace of Christ be with you. Uh, that's a heavy one. I mean, like the the one is beautiful, and I, I my, much love to you and all of you listeners who I have uh, broken your hearts, Stacy, because yeah. uh, this breaks my heart. I mean, it really, and I think, I think part of it is um, well, and I and yeah. I, I, so I I read in this um, Eric's sincerity, yeah, and his love. I appreciate that, and his well meaning, and I say that any anybody will take these cats coming, any day. Yeah, coming at. Anything? Talk to us. Tell us how you know with that, yeah. with that, with that perspective, with that, you know, in that way, um, you know, we might have to agree to disagree, but I, yeah. I appreciate the love from which that's, this that email place, came and from, and that's got to be really hard because we, you know, we stepped on a few landmines. All right, let's go to the last one then. This last email comes from a listener who, the subject says, from a gay celibate Lutheran. Who heard your broadcast, Stained Glass Rainbow. All right, so this is going back uh, a few episodes. Yep. Mm -hmm. Dear PYMP, I stumbled on your podcast, Stained Glass Rainbow, from March of last year when you interviewed Cantor Hoyt. I kind of skipped around the podcast a bit since most of it was pretty similar to other interviews and writings that I have encountered before. But as a celibate gay LCMS man myself, I wanted to thank you for interviewing Cantor Hoyt. It was a, it was nice to know of another LCMS celibate gay person. So I, I really appreciate I really appreciate the um, the ability to uh, enter into these conversations. Over the years, we entered into the conversations with conservative Christians mm -hmm. wrestling with the nuances of these uh, of these issues. Mm -hmm. And I feel bad that like this is probably going to be we'll get fewer and fewer of these kind of emails right. as we kind of take take a different perspective. And but this is one of the reasons why we I think stuck in it as long as we did was to be able to keep the genuine discourse happening and not just have it be polarized. I'm sorry. I will also say that one of the things that I I don't know, I, I find it I guess sad for a lack of a better word, but he says it is nice to know of another LCMS celibate gay person that loneliness the loneliness yeah and also the fact that that there aren't more that there isn't a community of people supporting each other in that within that system right. why i think what this speaks to is the need in a lot of ways for for people to not admit things when they, you know, if they're ashamed to say that they're gay or whatever. Right. And they, the fact that he didn't, like, know of another, like, that, that, that it's such a small community of even being able to connect with or whatever that I, I feel shows that there's also something about the system that makes it not a safe place to even be vocal or, or to even try to search out that community mm -hmm. within it. You need that support. You need, yeah, I don't know. Anyway, um, I would love to have a conversation with you sometime, either email or phone. So we should we did connect up. Yep. Connect up. We are behind. And he says, let me tell you about myself. First of all, I am 60 years old. I do like that younger people are dealing with this issue through groups like Revoice and have resources out there like Washed and Waiting and the books by people like Eve Tushnet. I don't know any of these things, and we're in the camper van, so we can't look up on it, but it's, uh, yeah. I am curious what these young people's experiences will be like when they are my age. 
Definitely will be different. I can promise this. Of course, I myself will not be around then. But they do seem to have a hope and a confidence in the future that I recall also having in my 20s and 30s. Mm. I am wondering if the church will fulfill that hope with them or if their experience will continue to be more like many of my generation that the hope of fellowship and support in our faith community proved to be a lie and we find ourselves alone and discouraged as we move into our senior citizen years. This makes me so sad and I send all love and positive blessings and prayers to you. I, I just, this is the kind of thing that that caused us to not be able to operate as we had been operating. Because I think you're right, that young people aren't going to put up with this. I mean, the fact is, it doesn't really matter what I do. I'm not killing your church. The church is crumbling. As a viable way of being in the world, young people are going to see through it. They just, increasingly, they just, it just can't hold the way it's been done. And he continues, anyway, my own experience. I first realized I was attracted to other guys at about age 11 in sixth grade when I had a significant crush on a new boy in my class. He was cute and outgoing and popular and new to the school and the strength of the feelings I had scared the crap out of me. Once again, that yeah, my fear. heart goes out yeah. to fear, you know, like I mean, where, yeah. like where you're like, what, what's this, you know, and that, that, that has to be not a positive thing. Mm -hmm. That it has to be something oh, yeah. that is scary, you know? Terrifying. By 15, I realized my attraction to other guys was not a passing phase that I was growing out of and looking at the Bible. I felt that the other alternative was to remain single. So I chose celibacy at age 15. That's a young age, too, to make that commitment. Yeah. That's, that's, a, that's a big deal. I have realized over the years that choosing lifelong celibacy at such a young age is unusual, both in my generation and in the current one. Though a lot of monks have done it over the millennia. In my late teens, I thought of myself as homosexual, but not gay. The term same-sex attracted did not, ev did not even exist yet. I was in my mid-twenties when Elizabeth Moberly suggested the ideas that would set the stage for reparative therapy and later developed into a therapeutic method by Nicolasi. About half a dozen years later, I began to attend a support group that had been associated with Exodus but had pulled out of association due to some of Exodus's political stands. By the way, Exodus International had, uh, I think, shut down at a conference on Concordia University's campus when we were living on the campus. Yes, I remember. They, the, the whole thing was there. And there was a documentary, I think it's called Pray Away. I'll link to the right one. Um, <clears throat> unfortunately, Concordia University's campus is featured prominently, even though we had no sponsorship. Concordia had no sponsorship or you know relationship with the Exodus International uh, officially. Yeah, it was just the location. They were just, yeah, they were using the space. It was a good group and very enjoyable, but the theories of Moberly and Nicolasi were deeply entrenched in the group at the time. I would attend such support groups and conferences for the next couple of decades. In the mid to late 90s, I contacted the Synodical Center in St. Louis to find out what resources our church body had for gay people. I was told that President Barry had just started a task force to develop a plan for ministry to homosexuals and their families. I wrote a couple of letters to the task force, and they asked if they could include some of my ideas in their work. 
so I inadvertently contributed a significant portion of what was finalized in the plan for ministry to homosexuals and their families, later ratified and accepted by the Synod in convention under President Kishnick. I stopped attending Exodus support groups just before it changed direction and then closed down. I was in a group one day when one of the attendees was rejoicing that he had felt erotic attraction to a woman's breast earlier in the week. This was hailed by all the members as a sign he was healing from his brokenness. It just hit me all of a sudden that what we were doing was really, really sick. We were trying to cure one lust by replacing it with another. And hmm. that, it seemed to me, was not biblical at all. That was about 10 years ago now, and though I am glad I withdrew and am very glad Exodus did the honorable thing and closed down, I do miss the contact with others like myself and the mm. fellowship such, such groups provided. Key theme. A fellowship which is utterly absent in the church today. Hmm. I wonder if such fellowship will eventually be available for the younger generations or if they, like myself, will be left adrift in their senior years. <sighs> anyway, as I said, I skipped around in the podcast a bit because it was fairly familiar territory for me. I will go back and listen all the way through in the next couple of days, but I do want to respond to a couple of things. At about 30 minutes in, you mentioned that m many celibate gay people are viewed as traitors by the LGBT community. You asked Cantor Hoyt about that, but I think part of the reason for that situation was not dealt with. One of the main reasons we are viewed as traitors is because conservative churches tend to weaponize our lives against LGBT people. I know several pastors who have used me as an example of how a same-sex attracted person should live their life for God. Mm. Yeah, it's heavy. This usage of our experience by pastors and Christian leaders does nothing to encourage LGBT people who show them the, the love of Christ or to help them understand God's mercy. It is like using us as a sledgehammer to beat others into compliance and to shame those who cannot similarly live alone and celibately. It makes us seem like a continuation of the old ex-gay shame-based programming. And so it is no wonder the LGBT community dislikes us and considers us traitors. Yeah. In the latter half of the interview, you dealt with the way the words Christians use can hurt LGBT youth. I need to go back and listen more carefully. And you are right that the way we talk about gay people can have a severely negative impact on gay individuals. But I think there is an underlying issue here that is hard to explain to pastors and Christian leaders, yet is vital to any kind of ministry we may do for gay people in the future. I think most Christians and most pastors are indeed appalled at the abusive language that is used by many Christians, and most try to avoid such extremes of language. But it is not the, the obviously abusive language that does the real damage to gay teens in the church. Rather, it is an underlying assumption that gay people are somehow broken compared to straight people, that heterosexuality is normal, and that homosexuality is a mental illness. Yeah. This paradigm of homosexuality being a developmental disorder underlies, for instance, the little booklet, Male and Female, He Made Them. That is the subject of a criminal trial in Finland and that, unfortunately, our Senate is, is hailing as a biblical stand against gay marriage. 
when a 14 or 15 year old kid receives the message that he is broken by well-meaning pastors who never use a gay slur, that kid develops a sense of himself as fundamentally unlovable in a manner deeper than any crude language could create. It is this sense of being broken in comparison to others rather than God's law that we need to address. Not to mention, it is not just the kid who is absorbing this message, but his peers and parents as well, creating a fear and shame that is difficult, if not impossible, to live with. Anyway, I would love to discuss this stuff deeper with you if you're interested. This current email has gone on long enough. Thanks, Matthew. Lots of very helpful insights. Helpful insights there. Tragic. Yeah. That this is the world we're in. It seems like, you know, it, it's hard enough to figure out how to be ourselves, but how to let people let us be ourselves. That's a, that the added burden, you yeah. know. But thank you very much for the insight to all of these. You know, and he mentions the word like being broken, and I've certainly heard it brought up about the LGBT community uh, within the church circles. I would also say that I've heard it just in general in humanity and as well, that we are all broken. That sometimes is a message it's beaten that, into us. Yeah. It, We've talked about this in terms of shame and discernment. Yeah, and I think that uh, especially when when it's used for for shame. Or when shame is used. And when shame is used, because yeah. then that's a controlling thing again, right? That it's incredibly unhealthy, and there's a lot of a, a lot of pain and suffering that comes from that. So if you do use <laughs> that word broken, I be careful, <laughs> I guess, in the context, because I, I think there's so much harm that can be done when 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 that word choice is is brought into the whole. And, and that's why I like what he says. That, that's why I like what he says when he talks about kind of the law. I think I know where he's going, where he's saying, okay, there's righteousness and we're off track. Now go with this for, just let go of this for a second. My life is misaligned. That's mm-hmm. sin. Sin is missing the mark, right? I'm, I'm, if I want to be a happy, healthy, and free person, and if I want to love my neighbor as myself, if I'm going to be at one with the universe and my fellow human beings, this is the way I'm going to go down this path. But I get sidetracked. That's sin. The law says this is the way. Love your neighbor as yourself. And I look at myself and I say I'm selfish. I'm not loving my neighbor as myself. I recalibrate. I reorient my heart, my mind, as I reflect on these texts, say in Scripture, that are going to talk about righteousness and justice and mercy. So I look at this. And I see that I've gone off. That's not brokenness. I think that's why I like what he's saying. We've strayed from righteousness, but the idea that we fundamentally are disgusting creatures is is traumatic, traumatizing. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I and I think that um, it's also a tactic to keep people at church, to keep people, you know, feeling like yeah. they've got to do all of their do all do their confessions. You know, pay their tithes. But they're always broken. Show up. They're always reminded they're broken. You don't get fixed. No, you know, you know, you they keep keep coming back for more. When we were at the uh, when we were at the event in Portland here recently, we were hearing a lecture from a guy talking about the fact that you have integration within yourself if you can re- return to it. Mm-hmm. And 
And that's a different message. That if you if you plug back in, right. you go back in within yourself and you see your own connectedness, you can reintegrate. Being told over and over that we're broken, but we got to come back and get like a free pass. Yeah. Right. Like we're not going to be fixed. <laughs> you know, a lot of these, right. these churches. Well, and that, and, that, and that piece of it also is it's interesting because I also I mentioned Kevin earlier in the podcast. Kevin also had a fundamental difference about uh, the advice that they were giving or, you know, the, the talks that they had or whatever. The, the hope was that the person wouldn't need to keep coming back. But the business wanted these people to keep coming back to Kevin to get this right. It was a counseling advice, type this, relationship. This thing. Yeah. And so, you know, are we are we trying to heal people and then help them, you know, move about their way, or do we need to keep people yeah. constantly to, to pay us to for therapy or yes. a church or something? Right. Right. Yeah. And if you're from outside of this, if you're from outside of this tradition, it may not make as much sense to you in the world that we had been in the Lutheran world there's this emphasis for many on spending the first part of a sermon explaining how bad you are and then the last part of the sermon reminding you that Jesus forgives you for being that disgusting bad person um, but you got to come back you know and hear that again next week I did that for a couple decades I don't it, it was that wasn't helpful didn't help me. I I'm sorry. Like I I guess I I understand the concept, you know, um, pointing people to their need for Christ. But I'm not sure that's empowering. You well, know, it's definitely not, not empowering. <laughs> it's it's like making you permanently dependent. And I there is a sense within spirituality of dependence, you know, but also recognizing your empowerment, recognizing that you are the presence of the sacred. You are the presence, capital P. You are the body of Christ. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. You are capable of being inspired. Who told you you can't be inspired? So some people get to be inspired, but then they said no more people getting inspired, right? Like these people, when we're going back to the big theme of the, 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 the today's show about inspiration and inerrancy, right? Uh, I don't think any of our spiritual experiences are inerrant. And maybe the people who wrote down their spiritual experiences in the Bible may be more reliable because of how the community gathered around it and gave it authority because it had authority, because it spoke the truth about Jesus. But, uh, but we can be inspired. We can have the spiritus, the, the spirit within us. We can recognize that we are the presence of this something. And when you enter into that space, certain things start to seem obvious, beautiful, compassionate, and true. And I guess that's that's the other angle on this, Stacey. And when you start to see some of that, that's when you feel that deep peace upon peace. Thank you so much, friends, for joining us for this episode of the Protect Your Noggin podcast. You want to join in on the conversation? We'd love to respond to your questions or comments on a future show. You can record a message by going to protectyournoggin.org and clicking on the blue voice message button. 
And don't worry about getting it perfect since you'll have five minutes and a chance to preview your message before sending. You can also send an email if you're not comfortable with leaving a voice message. Please also follow us on Twitter at the PYNP and rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you found this show of any help, uh, why not share it with a friend? Until next time, peace upon peace, friends. But he said there wasn't any letter. He said I was going out of my mind. Not going out of your mind. You're slowly and systematically being driven out of your mind. Why? Why? Perhaps because you found this letter no too much.